News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's 2020 and we're back with FAQ NYC. Christina Greer is traveling the world. Alex Lynn is here with me. And we're recording this week a 321 Canal, a racket media's uh, anecdotal history of journalism in New York City, an interactive art installation, Don't Bury the Weed, which you should come and check out. Joining us to talk some trash right now are Sally Goldenberg and Danielle Moyo of Politico New York, who are now, as we record on Thursday, four parts into uh, Wasted Potential about the uh, sad state of recycling in New York and across the board in homes, uh, with organic material uh, for businesses. And their pieces, which I strongly recommend you go and read, they're long and they're detailed and they're interesting. There are also some terrific videos with them. Paint a picture that's very different from some West Coast cities that seem to have much higher recycling rates. And this after our last two mayors, uh, one of whom ran for president, one of whom is running for president, both promised to transform this system. And so far, it doesn't seem like that's happened. Can you guys take us through what you found in your four months of reporting and why New York seems to be so far behind the curve on this sort of core environmental issue? Sure. So if you want, I'll go through some of the residential stuff and Danielle can talk about the commercial establishments. I think the main contributor to New York City's very low recycling rate of 18 percent is that food waste is not recycled basically at all. There's a pilot program that's pretty much not used. And so one-third of the waste stream that schools and homes produce, so a little more than one million tons of waste every year, comes from food and yard scraps. In New York City, that's more food than yard. That's called organic waste. And there's really not a comprehensive program to recycle it. So some residents can go to the Department of Sanitation and get the brown bins that you see and, you know, methodically separate their, you know, their onion peels and their orange rinds and all of that. But it amounted in 2017 to just 13,000 tons out of more than a million. So it's like 1%. Mayor Bloomberg, when he was uh, winding down his time in office, he had an environmental agenda and it never really included recycling. So as he was leaving office, he started a pilot program for high rises to do organics recycling. This is a little more logistically complicated in a tall building than a single home. And he, you know, he started it. He did a press conference, all the bells and whistles, and he sort of set it up for his successor to continue it and really implement it. De Blasio at that same time was running for mayor and promised a mandatory organics recycling program within five years. It never happened. You know, it's expensive and his budget officers basically got in his ear and told him it's too expensive. I think there were some union concerns as there always are anytime anything has changed. And I think he just frankly isn't focused on it uh, as he is not focused on so many things. And so he just plods along as this tiny pilot program and one third of the waste stream keeps going to landfills and incinerators, you know, every day. That's the main, you know, just kind of size wise, the main thing. And then not everybody thinks to recycle. Uh, The penalties are pretty small. They go to the landlord. So if you're a renter and you're not recycling, you're not necessarily getting the penalty for it. And now I'm just talking about, you know, cans and bottles, cardboard, that type of thing. We featured yesterday the Public Housing Authority, which is more than 2,000 buildings. They basically don't recycle at all. They use trash chutes, so it's very hard to recycle in a trash chute. 
and many of them are high rises and the bins that were only installed a few years ago because there was a lawsuit threat they're not really convenient the residents say like they have to go half a block it's sometimes dangerous it's sometimes dark out so there's really not an easy accessible infrastructure at the housing authority so that's like 400,000 people who basically can't recycle or don't recycle. And then there's a program that some cities, some of these West Coast cities employ called Save As You Throw or Pay As You Throw that you pay for your trash pickup. And in Seattle, you don't pay for recycling. So you're incentivized to recycle more and produce and just generally produce less trash. And New York City toyed with that idea. I think de Blasio teased it out. And then politicians, I think uh, City Council Speaker Cory Johnson in particular said it's a non-starter. And then, you know, there was no political will to make it happen. Nobody wanted to be the guy or woman who says we're charging you for trash pickup. So another, you know, another avenue for possible improvement is sort of fallen by the wayside. How much of this is a distinct New York problem because we have so many renters Mm -hmm. and we're such a vertical city as compared to a a place like Seattle where where you can incentivize homeowners to to, to sort their own trash? I think that it's harder in a city like New York. I think that getting renters to do something when the penalty goes to landlords is, you know, just a challenge in terms of an incentive. And some buildings that are older and larger that have trash chutes just aren't set up infrastructure-wise for recycling. If you own your own home, you just sort of have more of an attachment to all the different, you know, aspects of running a household that does, I think, get lost for some renters. I think that makes it a bigger challenge for politicians. It doesn't make it impossible. I'm a renter and I recycle, um, as you know, as do many renters. But it's not. I think that's a fair point, and that makes it harder. And therefore, it requires that much more political will and focus that is lacking. Danielle, reading the series, I actually learned that commercial haulers we were private in New York, and that's weird, complicated system that's going to be reformed. In this decade now, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, there's a new law that's supposed to be implemented, I think, in 2023. Mm-hmm. But I actually didn't know that uh, that they were required to recycle. Uh, having having seen this rule observed in the breach so often, like uh, trucks coming by, you know, at 2, 3 in the morning and just taking all the bags, the recycling bags and the trash bags and throwing them into the same truck. But reading this, uh, take us through this. I, I'm learning that they are. And that this gets monitored, I don't know, maybe two dozen times in a given year. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the agency that regulates the private carters, the Business Integrity Commission. They have rules to prevent what, like you said, is a pretty common sight, seeing a carter stop on the block and throw everything in the back of a truck, even though it was all neatly separated by businesses and restaurants. And what the rules stipulate is if... A business owner went through the effort of separating everything. You are not allowed to throw it then all in the back of a truck. And you can get fined. The fine starts at 1000 but it's supposed to increase with each offense. But the problem is BIC is a really small agency. Enforcement is very infrequent. I mean, just to to paint a picture, you know, the city says there are 90 different companies. Uh, You have a thousand different, over a thousand different private garbage trucks going out every single night and picking up trash from restaurants and businesses. And this agency is only going out a handful of times a year. Last year, they went out less than 10 times. Um, The most they've ever gone out was 37 times. 
But even that, considering the scope of this industry, is, is fairly small. And, you know, look, if you're only catching them once or twice, I mean, a $1,000 fine for these companies, that's just the cost of doing business. So it's not like you're really giving a huge deterrent not to do this. And for them, you know, shipping everything to a landfill is cheaper. It's easier. For them, that's, that's what they would prefer to be doing. It, it comes down to money. This, everything's, it all boils down to the bottom line. They, if they wanted to, they can recycle. They can recycle and compost perfectly fine if they wanted to. So I know Catherine Garcia, who is the sanitation commissioner and was the interim head of NYCHA as well, that she's really made zero waste personally a priority. It seems like that hasn't filtered up from the commissioner level to the uh, mayoral level, uh, which Indeed. has actually been a, a pattern, <laughs> including with NYCHA uh, and, and women, one might add. Mm. Um, but if de Blasio does get around to, uh, to reading your series at some point. Which, mm, we hope. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he'll have some time this weekend. He, he, I'll send him said, the links. Yeah, yes. he, he said, he, said he, he, he hadn't had a chance. That's um, right. What are the things that the city could do to change some of the economics of this? The city hall response in part is this is tough. People don't want to recycle organics. Uh, people in NYCHA, it's difficult to get them given the setup of the building and that these are tenants to recycle at all. Other cities seem to have found some solutions. But what is the math he could be looking at, that Corey Johnson could be looking at that could change some of this going forward? Well, I would say two things. One, just a brief interjection about, you're right, that uh, Commissioner Garcia has, we we visited her office to do an interview. She has a zero waste poster hanging above her desk. She seems very committed to this and was pretty frank in the interview with us that she doesn't believe the city is on track to get there, which I thought was an honest assessment from somebody who works for Mayor de Blasio. And get there, right? We're talking get, about the zero waste goal. So of- zero waste is a 90% reduction with the baseline level being the 2005 export, which was 3.6 million tons. So to keep it simple, in 2005, the city exported 3.6 million tons of trash from homes and schools to landfills. He wants to get it down to 360,000 tons by 2030. It has gone up since he made that pledge. It was whatever, it's 3.17, and last year it was 3.25 million. So it's going in the wrong direction. She wants to get there, and she was pretty honest with us that without an organics recycling program and without some other things in place, it can't happen. She said it's still feasible, but the city really needs to focus on this and and make some changes and make organics recycling a citywide mandate. Um, And there's just, as you mentioned, you know, just a lack of um, political will in City Hall to do this and a lack of focus, it would seem to us. It seems like the people who really want to recycle organics have a tremendous amount of will. That's right. Some of these are in the story. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in Park Slope, where de Blasio comes from, where Catherine Garcia lives, I think people do compost or, you know, separate out the organics, it turns into compost. In fact, in 2014, he put out a video of his family composting, you know, and I'm told that in City Hall, he makes sure everybody separates out into the brown bin. They have one in City Hall. So I do think that he, as a as a citizen, thinks about it. It's just, you know, as mayor, that's a different calculation. And then you asked about sort of the financial incentive. So last year, the city spent $409 million exporting trash. It's a lot of money because you're taking it far. Some of it goes to South Carolina landfill, an incinerator in Chester, Pennsylvania, upstate New York. 
and they have to contract with these long haulers and these transfer stations. Sometimes those are the same and whatever. So it's expensive. And the cost of recycling, is, which we get into a bit in uh, tomorrow's story, so stay tuned. That's sort of about the economics of it. But it is cheaper to recycle. Organics initially might be more expensive because there's a supply and demand issue and there's a capacity issue. So it's a chicken and egg situation. Until you make it such that there's enough organic material going, people don't really have the facilities to process it into biogas. Um, But once the city indicates to the market we're doing this, people will build those facilities and there will be more material. So over time, the expectation is it will become much cheaper. Where would those facilities be? Would this again be a question of hauling that organic waste or would those be within the city? Yeah. So right now the facilities that exist are in Connecticut, in upstate New York, you know, because they need a lot of space to make this happen. And and a big reason for that is because during the process of breaking down this organic material, it does smell and it's easier to do that on a big open farm or a you know, sequestered biogas area compared to doing it in the middle of the city. So it it does still involve hauling it. Um, But, you know, advocates have pointed out that there's potential to do it closer than the facilities that exist today, you know, maybe looking on Long Island or looking closer to the city, you know, right outside city lines as opposed to going hours and hours upstate. Um, But like Sally said, there's not a huge market incentive for these places to open up shop. And so until there's a sign from the city that, yeah, we're going to have the material for you, it, it, it's just stuck. I think the Newtown Creek does have a facility a Newtown, right, in, yeah. um, in New York City. They, they do biogas there. I mean, it's probably not enough to satisfy the entire demand if it were a citywide mandate. But there is – and there are some facilities. I think Staten Island has a composting site. Speaking of Staten Island – One of the things I was wondering reading the series so far is to what extent closing fresh kills changed the politics of trash in New York for the previous mayor and for this one, Corey Johnson and everyone else. Good question. So Staten Island, you know, politically sees itself as separate, not just in a partisan way and in a geographic way, but in a sort of treatment by New York City way. Um, Fresh kills, I think, is a a huge part of that. You know, Staten Islanders, they call themselves the forgotten borough and having a big landfill and the only one in the city uh, for many years contributed to that and exacerbated that resentment they have. So when Fresh Kills was closed, I think in right after, right around 9-11, the city then started doing short-term contracts just to, you know, get rid of its trash. My understanding is it was very expensive to do a short-term contract. They didn't have leverage. It was sort of disorganized. So in 2006, they implemented this solid waste management plan, which was meant to kind of bring order and cost expectations or predictability to the system. And they set off on this plan to put transfer stations in every borough and not just kind of cluster them in low-income areas where, you know, people are often burdened with problems like trash. And that's happening. I mean, it's slow because, like, on the Upper East Side, uh, that was a huge political fight. Nobody wants a transfer station or garbage in their neighborhood, and it's easier to fight that fight if you're a wealthy community and you can afford lawyers and all of that. But the system they have in place now basically, you know, sorts the trash at these transfer stations and then sends it on its way. But of course, a big part of the reason it's going to all these different landfills and incinerators around the region 
is that Fresh Kills is closed. So the the opening of this series, which uh, will conclude Friday, is that right? That's correct. And then I assume there'll be there'll be more more dispatches just just with news. Well, we're hopefully. hoping that politicians will see this, and perhaps um, aspiring politicians might start talking about the issue. So you guys open um, not in New York City, but 150 miles, give take, north of the city in uh, Rensselaer, where you're. On the other side of the dump on a chilly November morning, a few hundred yards from the stench of rotten eggs, uh, children began filing into the uh, local school complex. Uh, This scene is the consequence of New York's failure to contain its trash. So as we've been exporting and outsourcing our trash problem, how much of this is local and like let's drive this trash under 50 miles? How much of this is going around the country and how much of this is an international import-export trash business? And how are those economics shifting? So – the city produces roughly 12 million tons of trash every single year. So just to keep that in mind, that's a s- significant amount to have to deal with. A lot of that is construction and demolition waste, but trash... Recycling rate there is considerably higher, right? Well, it is higher. So they record a rate of 53%, but the state allows... Big asterisks there, right? Big asterisks there. Because the state allows these construction and demolition transfer stations to count repurposing debris to cover landfills as recycling. What? I mean, you're right. Does that make sense to you? I mean, you know, so because of that, we don't really have a real sense of how much of that is actually being repurposed into new materials, what people actually think recycling is or what recycling actually is. And we we say in the story, you know, there's one transfer station where it's a difference of 37 points that makes. So they're recording a 75% rate, but if you take out landfill cover, it's, you know, 38%. So, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt, and that's a significant amount of waste leaving the city. And all of it is going to landfills and incinerators around the mid-Atlantic region. So going everywhere from Ohio to South Carolina to upstate New York New Jersey, Virginia, there's a lot going to Virginia. And most of these communities are very poor and they're basically dealing with the burden of the city's massive waste problem. And it's it's just worth noting that, you know, with construction demolition waste, there there are no regulations to, to recycle that. It's voluntary. With these poor communities, how well are they doing off of this cash for trash exchange? Is this like a significant budget driver? Is this getting kids through college? Like, how does this actually work for them? Rensselaer was a a good place to visit because I think it really hones in on what it can mean for that community. So it brings in $1 million in revenue for the city, and their budget is $15 million, so that's fairly significant. They also give donations to the school. We mentioned the story that's nearby, the, the landfill owners. So there's a lot of pay to play in this. But when we spoke to all the residents that actually live there, you know, they, they see this as this is a big part of their life. This is they smell it every day. It makes them feel ill. There's trucks always coming in and out near a school. It's one of the biggest components of their daily lives. How much waste fits? You were talking about the total tonnage a year that mm-hmm. New York produces. So, so what does that amount to in terms of trucks? 
like a you know tonnage per truck. How many trucks come in and out of Rensselaer in, in a given year? Well, so there's not a lot of regulation of this because they only the tran- the transfer stations have to report this, but not every truck stops at a transfer station. So it's hard to really assess in a comprehensive way anything that's not regulated by the city sanitation department. Anecdotally, when we went to Rensselaer, we sat at a diner and we watched for at least an hour truck every five, 10 minutes leaving. And when we were at the dump at like six in the morning, there had to be more than a dozen. And that was just one snapshot in time. More were coming. And that's every day. And some go by rail. Some of this trash, just uh, I want to point that out, does go by rail, but it often involves, you know, a truck to a barge to a rail. I wanted to just say one quick thing about, you know, Rensselaer gets money from this and it's an economically uh, kind of depressed city. But we also featured Newark, New Jersey, um, which has an incinerator, and that gets a lot of New York City's trash, about 400,000 tons a year almost. And we spoke with a woman who's very involved in environmental justice, and she was saying that whatever revenue the state of New Jersey gets, it's split with New York because it goes to the Port Authority, and it's not necessarily going to Newark. So I think in Rensselaer it does, but then you do have situations where, like in Newark, I don't think the city is necessarily getting a direct pipeline of cash from having that incinerator also near our school. Can we talk for a minute about Redeemers and how that economy does and doesn't work in New York City and and New York State, which sort of have competing programs for that? Yeah, so the state has a bottle bill, which allows you to redeem water bottles and soda cans for five cents a piece. And the state is is a big fan of the program. They say it has, you know, improved recycling rates, but the city considers it a financial headache. And and the reason why is the people that mostly take advantage of the bottle bill are called canners. A study estimates there could be anywhere between 4,000 to 8,000 canners. And basically, these are people who, for the most part, are living on the margins of poverty, and they go into residents' recycling bags, and they take out all the the bottles and cans and, you know, exchange it for the five cents in the story. Tomorrow, we, you know, we talk to one homeless man who says it it basically helps him buy meals and, and new shoes in one case. But for the city, you know, recycling is a business. So all residents' recyclables go to the Sims Recycling Facility in Brooklyn. And basically the way it works is, you know, Sims takes all this recyclables, they sell it on the open market to get reused, and certain recyclables are worth more than others. So soda cans and the water bottles that the canners taking out are considered the most valuable. And they say basically, you know, it's a huge hit to them. And as a result, it makes it that much harder to subsidize the cost of recycling less valuable materials like the plastic clamshell food containers your salads come in. So it's this very interesting tension, right? Because it is getting recycled. So it's hard to say there's not an environmental benefit to the bottle bill, but environmental advocates will say, well, there's a benefit to having a curbside collection program. And if it's hurting that, then And just to point out, the city has a revenue sharing agreement with Sims. They have a a long-term contract, 20 or something years, and they pay a rate. I think it's roughly $75 a ton. And that rate changes, you know, based upon the revenue that Sims gets. So, you know, if Sims gets a certain amount, the rate the city pays goes down. It's like a rebate. So 
it is hurting, uh, you know, it's immediately hurting Sims financially, but it is ultimately hurting New York City. And one person told us, and I don't know how far the Sims, you know, owner would want to take this, but like the city's technically in violation of its contract because the the goods in the system are being stolen every night. Um, the flip side of that is these are people who, you know, are living in a very expensive city and need a means to get by. And this, you know, I think they see it as it's sort of like money left out on the street every night and they are recycling it. Um, so as Danielle said, it's, it creates a lot of tension, but it is an economic downside, not just for this private company that's contracting with the city, but for New York City itself. And the other um, economic aspect of this is that China's not taking uh, recyclables anymore. And New York City didn't do a whole lot of plastic, glass, and metal to China or any but paper did go to China, so that's impacted the whole stream of things because paper is, you know, sort of considered separate in the recycling world. And New York City's paper was up until recently, right, getting sold to China. So that's another economic hit on this program. And what changed with China? Well, China, it's called the Chinese National Sword, and basically they stopped taking most foreign recyclables. Big reason being contamination. They were getting a lot of contaminated recyclables. But the direct impact to the city is, like Sally said, we were mostly shipping paper to China. And so that has made it much more difficult to recycle cardboard. More expensive. And more expensive. And it used to be a huge boom. Like cardboard used to be one of the most valuable recyclables. So this is something like, again, where, you know, it could have been helping with subsidizing some of these less valuable recyclables, but now that's a financial hit. And so you kind of add the the canners on top of that and, and you can see how in a difficult market situation, all of these things become headaches for the city. Speaking of cardboard, has Amazon and home delivery sort of changed the mix in terms of what uh, residences in particular are recycling and how that's worked? Yes. As newspaper use has gone down to a very low level, which is sad for people like you and me, and it always kind of makes me sad to hear that when people talk about it in a kind of positive way for the environment, but that's an aside, um, cardboard has certainly taken its place. Uh, cardboard has a high what's called capture rate, which essentially means it gets recycled pretty well. What Amazon does to the environment, though, or to this whole process is it packages things in this film, that white film with the blue writing of the logo, that really can't be recycled. Soft plastics basically can't be recycled. That's why New York is banning plastic grocery bags. And that Amazon packaging falls into that category. So that's all just going to landfill. That's all in the waste stream. So the cardboard gets recycled and that doesn't. And the other thing Amazon does is I'm sure like anybody who's ordered from it knows is it ships fast. So like if you order three things, you're not necessarily getting them all in one package. You're getting them in three different packages. And it could be a tiny thing in big packaging. Like I'm sure you've had that experience, right? You get like, I don't know, something small, a pair of earrings, but the package could fit like 50 of them, you know? So I'm making that up, but you know what I mean? So there's a lot of excess soft plastic in the stream because of that. Fast fashion companies is another trend that has created a lot of waste. You know, these stores where you buy something for the moment, expecting to throw it out in six months. And textiles can't really get recycled. They can get, you know, donated to Salvation Army and Goodwill and things like that. But those are two sort of consumer trends that have 
you know, impacted the garbage production where newspaper use has kind of tipped it in the other uh, direction. If I may, for just a second on newspapers, this is not true of journalism, but it is true in newspapers. It's a giant industrial business. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful to go to a printing plant to see that. Um, You know, the Times facility is massive or to watch the trucks deliver Mm -hmm. the papers. And so in the same way that the entire movie business prior to Netflix was basically an elaborate scheme to sell popcorn at insane markups. (laughs) Uh, you know, n- newspapers were industry. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, the journalism was almost incidental to that on a certain level. It was, it was this big physical product in a way that online news is not. That's right. And part of the issue with the tech companies is that they seem, for the most part, that, that they've sort of lost their manufacturing roots, the companies like uh, Hewlett Packard had. Um, and so they're able to offload whatever damage they're doing. To places where they're setting up massive electricity farms, to places where they're getting the the, the strange, valuable raw materials to get your phone battery and all that. Mm-hmm. But if you're living, say, you know, on the coast in California or in New York, uh, almost all that damage is totally out of your sight line. Maybe somewhat similarly. We'll see if I can bring this back. You know, I think most of us don't think all that much about our, our trash once it's right. out the door. Mm-hmm. Maybe occasionally when you go to another city and see that they have trash alleys, you're like, why can't we have that here? Yeah. But a couple closing questions here. The first is if you're you're a person and you're reading this and you're interested in policy, but you're also thinking about uh, your own life and actions, so you guys have been digging into trash. Uh, <laughs> ha-ha. <laughs> Any thoughts on uh, the best the best ways to 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 engage or how people's habits do or do not affect this this larger picture? I mean, the simplest thing people can do in the immediacy if they don't is to recycle metal, glass, plastic, and paper. Um, and the Department of Sanitation does explain what can and can't be on its website. They even have stickers that, yeah. that they'll give you and you can put mm-hmm. on your fridge. Yeah, magnets. we have one in our office yep. because, you know, things like I didn't know going into this that like milk cartons go with metal glass plastic. They don't go with paper. Um, yogurt containers, which is a rigid plastic, couldn't be recycled 10 years ago, but now they can. So, you know, it's good to keep up with the the sort of ABCs of recycling. If your neighborhood is serviced by the organics program, which is also um, delineated on a map on the Department of Sanitation website, that is something people can do. Uh, they could get a brown bin and recycle their organics, and if they have a lawn, their yard waste. The secret to doing that, I think, for most New Yorkers is just setting up a place in your freezer, and you have to yes. give up. 30% of your freezer space. Yeah. So you've got a bin in there. And then depending on the size of your freezer, you know, you got to take it out, to yeah. open it up and put this stuff in. And it's mildly inconvenient. Once you get in the habit, it, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Right. But you have to develop a habit. Right. The other thing that, you know, came up a lot in this, in reporting this series is the purchase in the first place. You know, you you don't have to think about recycling your garbage if you're not, if you're not producing as much garbage. So, you know, getting uh, Catherine Garcia, the commissioner, was like, you know, if you think about all the plastic bottles you buy, she didn't say go out and buy a swell bottle, but that was sort of the implication. You just keep refilling that bottle. You're, you know, you're not, you're not buying the bottles in the first place, so they don't even need to be recycled. So not to take a shot at anyone else in the Siegel household, but uh, Amazon is trash and getting in the habit of not buying things that you can actually get from people around you means that there's less stuff to get from people around you. You're getting everything with more packaging. 
Uh, you're no longer living in a physical place in the same way. It creates tremendous problems. Also, their, their television service is trash, so that's not a good reason to <laughs> stick with them. You can actually save your photos if you share them with your cloud, which is another reason not to. And, you know, Bill de Blasio, who, who, who you know, is not coming back on the podcast and is aware of my, my generally low opinion of him, I, I, I must say is, is right personally – and to to push that, um, we're not getting to the Amazon deal here. Mm-hmm. That, that, that it's not healthy to 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 do that if you live in a place it is convenient. And, you know, I have right. kids, and it's easier to get stuff there that way. But you do just accumulate so much more waste in the course of that. And, and I think everyone sees it in their own in their own households. And you order stuff you don't actually need, like like old people used to do on infomercials. I was just yeah, going to say Amazon's just taken the place of of. A desire to buy things, and Amazon's filled that. But it is like uh, it is sort of part of American culture is consumerism. Whether it's Amazon or I mean, you raise some some issues with it as a particular company, but I think that there's it's the same thing with these fast fashion companies. There's a human desire to buy, and then the market fills that in. But when the market isn't related to where you are physically, yeah, and Amazon has a, a sort of a monopoly on that. And they didn't invent the internet, but it's where shopping happens on the internet. That, mm-hmm. that, that to me is a real distinction. So old school, like 80s style, yuppie, conspicuous consumption in New York, where you're at least like buying your, 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 your cocaine and your fur coats here, <laughs> I, I think in a lot of ways was, was considerably healthier than, than doing that on a uh, – Buying I'm your not cocaine sure. and your fur coats on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what the market there is. When we spoke to um, the environmental advocate who – does a lot of advocacy around the Newark incinerator, you know, she made that point. She was like, this is the the product of consumerism. The, the wealth of New York City is the reason this incinerator is so needed in the first place. And, and she really tied it back to that, that she views the incinerator as sort of a byproduct of the obscene wealth of Manhattan and Fifth Avenue. It's crazy. Um, one thing... I like when I was younger was going to certain neighborhoods on trash day and uh, and bringing home like furniture, <laughs> paintings. People throw out some incredible stuff yeah. in the city. I know I'm not mic'd, but I have one thing to say. Until the great bed bug epidemic uh-huh. yes. of the city, uh, as teenagers, we would get, you would know. You want to go to the Upper East Side? You're going to get a club chair from the yeah. 40s that's, like, beautiful. You want to go, like, to the East Village? Someone's, like, pink and sparkly repainted cabinet is down there that probably some famous artist made in the 70s and then somebody else threw out of their tenement window. I mean, it was just like like Garbage City was actually really, really beautiful and, and repurposing stuff was cool. I dragged a car, the back of a car seat out of a burned out car all the way home and used it as my like little sofa at my in my room much to my mother's chagrin but you know she was like a little bit of an artsy collector too anyway just one, one more thing with that if you go to places where space is a little cheaper than new york i, I never leave new york but i lived in ann arbor for eight months mm-hmm. and one, i remember one, that yeah one, one of the things that blew me away there and you know it's a college town it has its own little bubble economy outside of detroit there are other unique factors there but space is cheaper all around so there's roller skating rinks there's like pinball parlors that are not at some you know bizarre 25 dollar an hour price point like you, you would get in manhattan um and there's also all sorts of incredible recycling facilities that contractors are actually required to use and all sorts of other people do use so since there's space to hold this stuff and space is really the limiting factor in New York. If you just talk to anyone who does like construction work here, mm-hmm. you know, 
they, they can sort of take you through the economics of this, that, that, that it would cost more to store than to, often to buy things. But there's 10 million doors, um, you know, every uh, plumbing fixture you could need. And just giant spaces filled with that stuff along with, you know, clothes, tennis rackets, old records, and uh, all, the, all the fun usual junk. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Closing question here and getting back to uh, trash and the people who really have the responsibility who I don't think are individual actors. If you're looking to be, say, just theoretically the next mayor of New York City, how should you be framing this issue and thinking about this going forward? Because I think even if uh, this mayor gets around to reading this series, <laughs> and even if he has an excellent sanitation commissioner, that uh, the, that that ship may have sailed. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that all mayoral candidates should be keeping in mind is even you know there's obviously climate change implications to all of this, and and we go through the the impact it has on communities. But beyond even that, is that space is limited and. Landfill space is, is not something that is expected to expand. We're coming to the end of having a ton of place to actually put this stuff. And so if you don't seriously reduce how much waste we're producing, it's going to become, you know, we're already spending $400 million a year to export it. It's going to become more expensive. And there's a question as to where all of it will go. And they need to be thinking of it from that perspective that, this is not a sustainable solution, and there needs to be a serious effort to reduce it before it's too late. And I would just say one really quick thing is, you know, it's it's probably not a winning mayoral campaign to say, like, I'm going to charge you for your trash and you have to recycle organics. Like, you know, it's politics. People have to frame things in a way that make them populist messages. Far be it for me to advise anybody who wants to be mayor, but I do think that framing it in a way of a societal problem versus a charge, a tax, a, um, a nanny state issue, a regulation, is a way to sort of overcome that that barrier that all politicians face, which is they want to please people and people don't like change and they don't like being charged. So city council speaker Corey Johnson, who'd like to be mayor, he got a call from a Staten Island advance reporter. who's like, hey, man, uh, do you think people should pay money to have their garbage taken out? And he's like, no. And that ended the whole pilot, you know, the whole from our understanding of reporting that sort of uh, threw cold water on the city, even studying it. I'm not saying that's the answer, but that is how things die in politics. Mm-hmm. So what is the message that could help them live for, uh, for all, the, uh, all the aspiring mayors listening right now? This is a problem for everybody in New York City and beyond. And as Danielle said, it's unsustainable. You can't see nothing and smell nothing forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, Danielle, thank you guys so much for taking the time. Thank uh, you. really appreciate it. And um, I'm looking forward to part five and to guessing, hoping future installments as uh, this sort of presses politicians who've been comfortable ignoring this issue to, to dig farther in. Thank you. Thank you. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy and Research. We recorded this week a 321 Canal Street, street level, which is the uh, location of the interactive art installation, Don't Bury the Weed. Big props to Alex Brooklyn for putting that on. Thanks. Big thank you to Sally Goldenberg and Danielle Moya of Politico New York for coming in and talking some trash about trash. Let's also give a shout out to a few groups that are doing the good work. And if you want to reduce uh, your trash 
print, you should check them out. There's Transform Don't Trash, the Lower East Side Ecology Center, which has a really cool e-waste warehouse in Brooklyn where you can buy cool old electronics. I got some typewriters there for the installation. It was great. And the National Resource Defense Council. That's it for this week. Remember, it's the fact. Yeah.